Welcome in to the OMR Podcast International. My name is Scott Peterson, Digital Marketing Editor at OMR. We are back. I'm back in the proverbial saddle again on the mic as your host. And I have to say, we have quite the show for you today. Phil Libben joins me on the pod, founder and CEO of Mm-hmm and ex-CEO of note-taking and productivity app Evernote. Phil is a lot of things. In addition to being a serial entrepreneur, he's a regular on the speaking circuit from podcasts and webinars to appearances on CNBC. He's a champion of remote work and an all-around intelligent guy. On top of his past endeavors at Evernote and others, we spoke about his current project, Mm-hmm. Launched as an inside joke right after the pandemic started, Mm-hmm is an app that makes video presenting a lot more enjoyable. But I'm not the only one who thinks that. Just five months after launch, Mm-hmm had a round of Series A funding worth around about $41 million U.S. Not bad at all. But before we get to Phil, a quick heads up. Don't worry if at some point during the conversation you start hearing a freight train rolling past in the background. You are not hallucinating. Phil called in from his place in Arkansas, which is apparently close to some train tracks. Now, I know my producer Florian is going to get as much of it out as possible, so hopefully it doesn't distract too terribly much from my conversation with Phil. All right, that's it from me. Enjoy the pod. Yeah, so I'm thrilled to have joining me on the other line from halfway around the world. I was going to say from the West Coast of the United States, but it's not entirely true. Um, but it's CEO and founder of mm-hmm, Phil Libben. Phil, how are you? Thanks for joining me. Thank you. Nice to be here. Uh, there's a lot that I'm looking forward to talking to you about. Uh, we'll be doing a fair amount of jumping around, talking about what you're doing now, what you've been up to. But I think it's only logical we start with your current endeavor, which is Mm-hmm. Um, what can you tell the people about Mm-hmm? I know elevator pitches are a no-go for you. Um, <laughs> so take all the time you, you need. Well, we, it's something we started working on uh, really as a joke uh, back in May, a couple of months after the pandemic started. And, you know, we all had to go on lockdown. And, uh, you know, video was just really boring. I kind of noticed you know, the first few weeks of the lockdown, I think, wasn't boring because it was kind of scary. So we were all just, you know, terrified about what was going to happen. But then, yeah, a couple of months into it, the kind of the sheer panic had subsided, but we were, it was replaced with just tedium. Like all of our meetings were lame and presentations were ineffective. So we just started goofing around on video, um, trying to duplicate some of the styles that we'd seen on, you know, comedy shows and news shows and um, just try to make our video lives a little bit more interesting. And it, it, it took off from there. Okay, so you so you launched in, or you started tinkering with the idea in May, um, and then this past October you raised about twenty one million in Series A funding, if I'm not mistaken. It's a pretty good 30, start. Thirty six million, I think. Thirty six. Okay, yeah, even better. Um, I think yeah, between between the seed and the and the A round, yeah. Okay. Thirty thirty six. And uh, how how big is the company now? Um, how many employees? Well, we're about uh, it's about forty five people on the team, okay. uh, and we started out with two, so it, it's it's gone pretty fast in less than a year. Um, but this is part of, um, you know, we 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 spun out of All Turtles. All Turtles was our product studio uh, mm-hmm. that that we we try to make, you know, worthwhile products with as little you know, nonsense and inefficiency as possible. And so I think we were able to 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 get up to speed so so quickly because there was already a bunch of people at All Turtles that we. Could put to work on this thing. So the the first you know twenty or so people that worked on mm-hmm, were all old turtles employees, and then we went out and hired a bunch of a bunch of new people. So it, it was a good way to get a get a jump start on what we were doing. 
Okay, and uh, so give me a, a few uh, the the greatest hits at, at first. Uh, you said it started as a joke, so you just popped up unannounced at a couple of Zoom meetings, had some nifty backgrounds rocking. Um, I imagine that that resonated pretty well with your people. Otherwise, you wouldn't have pursued it. Yeah, I mean, I I actually like there's some tweets when um, I just started like experimenting before we had actually written any code. Uh, mm-hmm. Like I just started goofing around on on Zoom. I had a I had a green uh, camping towel. Um, mm-hmm. um, I don't know why I have a camping towel because I've never been camping, but uh, I like buying camping equipment. I think that's that's what I'm into. Uh, so I had this green towel that I ha- I hung up behind me, uh, and it was just kind of a small towel. But I started projecting images onto it uh, just in Zoom. Uh, kind of pretending that it was like a monitor or a screen. Mm-hmm. and then, A green screen. Yeah, I started having, you know, Anthony Fauci standing behind me, you know, nodding very, very disapprovingly and that kind of stuff. And yeah, people just, you know, it was like, it was the first time that I'd seen people smile in a while. I mean, that, okay. you got to remember the first couple of months of the pandemic, like these are not happy times. Uh, and then, um, and then we made something just because I wanted to show off my Instagram photos. Uh, <laughs> I have a lot of like wacky Instagram pictures from Japan. So I was just, you know, showing those off in meetings. Uh, and then the, the kind of the light bulb moment came when I thought, oh, let me try giving a presentation this way. I think I was teaching some class. Yeah, I was teaching a class uh, mm-hmm. and I had to do it online. Um, and I thought, man, this is just going to be boring because normally, you know, I use slides. And uh, when you when you do slides online, you have to like, oh, I'm going to share my screen, and then like mm-hmm. the slides are in one box, and you're in a different box, and people are splitting their attention, and it's hard to do any of the... It's just hard to be charismatic that way. Sure. Um, and so I, I, I tried making the, making the slides so that I could just project them behind me, sort of, you know, news anchor style. Mm-hmm. Um, and that worked really well. I, I, I taught this class, and I just got this great, you know, um, feedback about it and a lot of people like wanted to know how I was doing that and wanted to do it themselves and so then I thought yeah maybe this is maybe this is a thing so we mm-hmm. we uh, quickly put together like a, a rough tech you know prototype mm-hmm. uh, and then I just showed it to some investor friends of mine just as like a hey we built this thing we're not sure if we're going to do anything with it what do you think and every single person we showed it to wanted to you know either buy it or invest in it so within a few weeks we we thought all right yeah this is this should be real something. let's take it seriously and uh, how many users do you have now? I know that you just entered uh, Windows beta, correct, at the end of the first of the month? Yeah, we just, uh, so we, we're, we we went out of beta on the Mac okay. uh, in November. Uh, so we've been lo- we've been publicly launched just on the Mac for a few months now, four months or whatever it's been. Mm-hmm. And then we just went into open beta on Windows a couple of weeks ago. Um, you know, we decided, uh, so... I made a decision when I was at Evernote. Uh, we were like extremely transparent about numbers. We would just give numbers out all the time, mm-hmm. and I vowed I would never do that again because it's a trap. It's like it's like Admiral Akbar says, yeah. and, you know, Empire Strikes Back. It's a trap because once you do it, you just got to keep doing it, and like it doesn't matter if the numbers are good or bad. It's just like it's just like endless. So we basically said we're not we're not giving out numbers, uh, and yeah, we're just, we're just sticking with it. Uh, we don't, you know, we're there's a lot of video. In fact, the first class I taught using. Mm-hmm, was this um, the state machine? Um, if you just Google my name and, and state machine, sure. I actually wanted to get to that a little bit later, but yeah, I'm a, yeah, yeah. So I think that was like the first one that I actually did. And there's probably video of it somewhere because it was for like one of these. Uh, I think it was for Founder Institute or something. And, yeah, I um, think that sounds correct. Yeah. Uh, so we're very like we're very uh, intentional about what we measure and what's important. Mm-hmm. And at, at the early stage of a product, which is where we're at now, what's not important is the total number of users. What is important is 
the, the people that are using it are getting a lot of value out of it. So it's measuring the product market fit mm-hmm. and how, how quickly is that growing? And we have, we have a pretty, uh, pretty elaborate like setup for how do we measure that, which I talk about in this, in the state machine thing. So like that, that's what we keep track of and I'm, I'm thrilled with the, with the results. And once we're, once we're pretty confident that we've got, you know, solid product market fit, then we start worrying about, okay, well, how, how quickly is the overall user base growing and we'll scaling it up that. and that type of thing. Okay. Um, but yeah, so we're dealing with a very, very young startup. Um, so it's probably way too early. Well, you're, you're laughing, you're smiling. Uh, maybe that's uh, incorrect because you're a very experienced individual. You've got all turtles behind you. Um, but uh, within a year to uh, have raised this amount of capital and to have this much positive resignation, I think most startup, most entrepreneurs would only dream of that type of performance. Um, but what I was wanting to get at is probably too early to talk about monetizing. At least I thought it would be. But I did see at the beginning of April, um, you guys released a couple of uh, pricing plans. Um, what goes into that decision? Is that like, How do you reach the conclusion uh, that, okay, now we're, we're ready to start charging for this product? Yeah, we were actually charging for it from, from the first day when we launched, when we, when we went out of beta on the Mac. Um, uh, so we, we, have this, we have this core philosophy uh, going all the way back to Evernote. Uh, a lot of the team here was the original team at, at Evernote, uh, which is um, direct revenue only. So we, we um, like the product is the product. I mean, you know, people you'll often hear people saying like, "Well, like if you're not sure how how like the tech companies make money, then like you're the product." And like we're, we reject that. So you're not mm-hmm. the product. Our product is the product. We only make money when people or companies choose to pay us because they want to use the product. So it's like a very old fashioned you know business model. And uh, to get that to work, we need to like. We need to start charging for it, you know, from day one. So, so it's a freemium model, just like you know, just like at Evernote and a bunch of other stuff we've done. So you can use it for free. Um, everyone can use it for free for for a limited period of time, and then after that, you can keep using it for free, but at a reduced function set, or you buy a subscription. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, that's 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 what it's been from day one. I mean, that's the business model. What we launched in, in on April first, uh, which we we decided was going to be a from now on, we're going to call that April Truth Day because yeah, it's like April Fool's Day gags. So on April 1st, we launched the um, the enterprise version. So now companies can buy it. So it's, it's called mm-hmm Business. And you can mm-hmm. you basically buy it for, for all of your employees because I think a lot of companies are realizing that, uh, you know, video is here to stay in an important way. And it's just, it's, it's important for companies that everyone be effective on video and on brand. Uh, so that's how we make money. We, we, we're freemium on the consumer side. We charge companies. And that's been going great. Um, I think there's a lot of there's a significant amount of uh, willingness to pay for you know for good products that that, that make video suck less. Sure. Um, so it's definitely born of COVID. Mm-hmm. Um, but it doesn't seem like you feel like you're under any type of pressure to kind of get while well, the getting's good, so to speak, and capitalize on the moment of people working from home. I mean. I think it's fair to say that most companies are going to have some some amount of remote working in place moving forward from here. Um, but is there any pressure to get it out there and get the word out while the awareness is perhaps at its peak or the the uh, willingness to accept video? Um, so I, I think this is a permanent you know change in the world, uh, and uh, it's going to the hype cycle is going to 
you know, is going to crest and fall and, you know, crest again, like the hype cycle always does. But, right. but that, that's not important. Um, one of the reasons why we wanted to raise a significant, uh, significant uh, amount of money is because we want to remove ourselves from the hype cycle. We don't want to be like surfing, oh, this month everyone thinks video is, is hot. Oh, this month people are going back to the office and they think that video is over. Like that, that's nonsense. Um, the long term, you know, the, 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 the macro trend, the secular trend in the world is, um, you know, over the past year, we were all on video because we had to be. Mm -hmm. uh, <clears throat> now, as the pandemic is hopefully ending, we get out of it, we're going to keep being on video for the things that are better on video. So a lot of the stuff that, like, we we as the, an industry have invented over the past year actually turns out is really good. It's an effective way to do things. And so those things that are better done in a distributed way on video are going to continue to be done in video, and those things that are better done in person are going to be done in person. Uh, and so... Video, like as a at video's transformation of the world is, you know, it's just getting started. And yeah, maybe like three months from now, it will be less hype than three months ago. But I have 100% confidence that a year from now, two years from now, it's actually going to be much bigger than it's ever been because like the real work is just getting started. Sure. Um, so who uh, who would you say is your your core target group with? Mm -hmm. Who are you aiming it at, or who are, who are the primary users? Well, it's people. It's people for whom being better on video makes an important impact in their lives. Um, so it's basically uh, you know professionals mm -hmm. uh, that that need to do stuff on video, which is almost all of them, and education. Uh, so we have a lot of a lot of teachers, a lot of students, uh, and uh, you know a lot of you know, investors, journalists, you know salespeople. Uh, it's a pretty broad range of use cases. Uh, sure. We have. Um, there's a group, you know, we, we publish like stories uh, just about, you know, people using it on our, on our blog uh, fairly frequently. And, and there's, there's some really great ones. I mean, we have we have large public companies using it for, you know, board meetings and like investor calls and, you know, roadshows. And we have literally a group of uh, hospital clowns, people whose businesses, you know, they're clowns. They go to hospitals to like entertain sick children. And, uh, you know, they use it because it's just a very effective way to do it. So I think when you have like actual clowns and Fortune 500 CEOs, like that's a, that's a pretty good spectrum of, yeah, of uses. Yeah, fairly broad, but doesn't that also create maybe some difficulties in the uh, approach to the product itself? Um, I mean, those are such divergent polar opposites, CEOs and clowns. I mean, parse that as much as you want, but yeah. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I think um, it influences how we, s how we think about sales and marketing. Mm-hmm. Uh, it means that we need to try to make a product that's that's pretty broad, that that has broad appeal, and that's that's simple enough to use. Where you shouldn't need, you know, down the road, you shouldn't need like a very complicated sales process or an installation process. Uh, and so it it puts that kind of pressure on us. It puts pressure to just make something that's that's relatively simple, that's elegant, that appeals to a lot of people. Um, and you know, but that's 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 what the team's done before several times uh, relatively successfully. So, it, it, you know, we're, we're comfortable with that. Uh, it's a different approach than, say, you know, building traditional vertical enterprise SaaS software that's targeted for an industry where you try to get really deep expertise on how to sell to that industry. But, um, you know, that that's never been something that we've been particularly good at anyway. So, like, we're, we're good at making something that hundreds of millions of people love and want to use. Most of those people happen to be professionals or, you know, or in education. So we're just gonna we're just gonna do that again. All right. Um, I want to talk about the name. Mm -hmm. It's kind of uh, it's a bit jarring, which is a good thing. Um, makes it very difficult to forget. I think already since we've started recording, I've said mm -hmm, at least fifty times. Yeah. Um, 
but I can imagine that an onomatopoetic name like that is, could make it difficult to find unless there's uh, some type of universal, universal consensus I'm unaware of on how to spell it, but it is a palindrome that helps. Um, where did the name come from? I mean, just like everything else, it just started out as a joke. Um, you know, we, uh, so we have a whole process for how to name things at Old Turtles. You know, we name lots of stuff because uh, we work with you know a lot of startups, a lot of projects, and we have a whole framework uh, for how to how to pick names and uh, <clears throat> like broke all of the rules of our framework. Uh, so we just, you know, what type yeah. of framework? I'm very interested in that. I come from like a, a translation and a copywriting background, and I know like claims and finding names for things one of the most tedious tasks possible, or it can be. Um, bang your head against the wall hours on end and no breakthroughs. So, well, I think there's so there, there's there's kind of two there, there's the bigger philosophy uh, which we very much did adhere to uh, for the name and for everything else, which is you know works for naming, works on any kind of design, which is um, we are trying to pick the thing that's the most good, mm-hmm. not the thing that's the least bad, um, which seems like a trivial statement, but 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 it's important. Um, there are, there are decisions in life and at work where it's very important, critically important to pick the least bad option. Um, the highest floor. The, yeah, but there's other decisions in life where it actually doesn't matter if you get it wrong very much. So it's much more important to pick the most good option, the option that has the most good. Very often, the option that has the most good is also the one that has the most bad. Right. So mm-hmm. you can have you can have a name or a design that is that is amazing and terrible at the same time. In fact, frequently, the thing that's the most amazing is also has all sorts of flaws. Sure. And so the, the question is like, is this a thing where you're trying to minimize the flaws? Or is this a thing where you're trying to maximize the the, the, the positives, the, the amazing aspects? And you, and you can never compare like the positives to the negatives. The human brain doesn't work that way. If you try to, if you think you're comparing like upside to downside, your amygdala takes over, your lizard brain, which is like mm-hmm. much more geared towards risk reduction for just about everyone. And so you make a very conservative decision. So the the, the core philosophy for designing of startup things, where it doesn't matter if you fail. Like if if your startup fails, if our startup fails, like so what? It, for the from the perspective of the world, obviously, mm-hmm. like it sucks for me, but you know I'll get over it. Um, but in terms of for the world, like it's not you know it hasn't lost anything, right? It never had this thing to begin with, so it's okay to fail. And once you kind of realize that, like okay, we're not trying to be safe because we're not trying to protect anything because we have nothing to protect. Mm-hmm. We're just trying to be as 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 good as possible, as amazing as possible, then, you know, you start making decisions that are all about uh, maximizing the upsides. So when that comes to naming, it's like, well, okay, mm -hmm, uh, yeah, all right, well, people aren't going to know how to spell it. Okay, yeah, that's that's a downside, all right. Um, But I don't care about the downsides. Like, we've decided that for this kind of thing, the downsides aren't what's important. What's important are the upsides, and the upsides are, you'll remember it forever. It sticks in your head. Um, It's funny. Uh, I we like the name. It just makes us smile, you know, to say it. And like those upsides are more important. And then it turns out, we, you know, if you lean into it, a lot of the times the the downsides just kind of go away because like you would think it's hard to find, but like it isn't. Go ahead and Google for mm-hmm, however you think it's spelled. Like you'll find us. It's okay. Like maybe it'll take you two clicks instead of one, but you know, it's it's, it's <laughs> the downsides are like fair enough. Actual downsides. Yeah, fair enough. Uh, but you said uh, mm-hmm, broke all the rules. Uh, can you elaborate on that for a second? How the, the naming rules? Yeah. Uh, uh, well, so there's a process. So um, uh, the closest the closest public like published thing to to how we think about naming officially 
is uh, it's called the Igor Naming Guide. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can just Google Igor Naming Guide. Igor is a we're not affiliated with it. Igor is a company. It's a, it's a naming company, and they publish this like they publish their framework called the Igor Naming Guide. And it's really good. So everyone who cares about naming should read it. We don't adhere to it strictly, but it's really important. I, I make everyone read it before we start talking about names. Because like just the vocabulary is important. It's important for people to realize that like naming is a process. It's not a thing that like pops into your head in the shower and you're like, let's go with this. It's a process. There's like there's different types of names, there's a whole taxonomy. There's examples of good and bad names in every taxonomy. You have to think about what you're trying to optimize for. And so it, it, the Igor naming guide is kind of a brilliant process for doing it. And we have a we have a modified version of it that we've been using for you know more than a decade, uh, just internally in all of our projects. Um, and uh, you know, the first the first rule of that is like naming is a process. It isn't a thing that just pops into your head when you're in the shower. And mm-hmm is just something that popped into my head when I was in the shower. So <laughs> okay. it, 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 it broke rule one and then it just sort of, you know, and then we did actually run the process. We actually considered hundreds of other names. Uh, but by the time we got serious about it, we were like, well, okay, like we got to stop calling it mm-hmm because that was a joke name that popped into my head in the shower. Let's actually be rigorous about it. So we went through the process. But then at the end, mm-hmm was still the, was still the most good name. It was okay. also the most bad name, but it was also but it was the most good it still name. Had the so, most upside. Yeah, and so yeah, we, we we chose the one with the most upside, regarding disregarding the downsides. Very good. Um, all right, so uh, you went to Boston University. That's correct. Where you studied computer engineering, computer science. Yeah, computer class science. of twenty nineteen. Class of twenty nineteen. That's right. Wow. Recent grad. All right. I, I, well, uh, congratulations. It took me thirty years to get my bachelor's degree. Uh, I, I I enrolled in the uh, computer science department in. Uh, 1989, got my degree 30 years later. So yeah. yeah, you don't want to rush things. No, exactly. exactly. <laughs> if it's worth doing, it's worth taking your time. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, so it's fair to say I think that you're a math and numbers guy. Um, never had any formal management training. Um, how did you transition from that into uh, entrepreneur and CEO, Phil Libin? Um, so I started my first company. It was called Engine 5. It was in 1997. Started it with with two college uh, friends of mine, uh, Geech and Brandon, uh, and we were all we were all engineers. It was originally going to be five of us. That's why we called it Engine Five. But then two people chickened out, so it was just three of us. But the name stuck. Yeah, the name stuck, and uh, all three of us were engineers, um, and we were just working. We were just you know programming stuff, uh, and I was the the like, Geech and Brandon, my co-founders, are amazing engineers, uh, and I'm I was only like a relatively decent engineer. Mm-hmm. And so, like, I got to do all of the unimportant work, like, you know, figure out, you know, negotiate with customers and, you know, buy a suit jacket, and you know, go travel around. And so I just kind of, like, I just kind of became the CEO because, like, the other two people didn't want to do it. And plus, they had, like, more important stuff to do. And uh, it just kind of stuck. And, like, so I kept expecting it. And, and, you know, that was that was in 1997. So that was, what, you know, 23, 24 years ago. And uh, just about every year since then, I, I always expect someone to like tap me on the shoulder and be like, "Hey, wait a minute! Like, no one actually like agreed that you'd be the CEO. You just sort of fell into it." So I, I, I'm, I'm expecting I'm expecting to hear that any day now. Fair enough, but it sounds like you were the most good option um, <laughs> among your friends. Um, but so, what did you learn about uh, people, or what did you have to learn about people, or people management, um, the business side? things too because I mean you have been quite successful uh, a number of different places uh, I, I think moderately successful you're uh, a humble uh, guy uh, you know I I think 
I think it is basically three jobs, three three parts to being a CEO. There's always like it's always the same three tasks. Like, uh, and so there's only three things you have to do. Um, you have to uh, you know you have to control the vision. You have to uh, make sure that there's the right people on the team to execute the vision, uh, and you have to make sure there's enough money in the bank. Um, and it's always it's always these three things. Like, and um, the tactics that you use for these three things vary pretty widely depending on what stage of the company you're at. Right. So, like, in, at the very beginning, when you're just like a tiny startup, then like the vision is the vision. You just invent something. But later, when you're you know a few hundred people, then you're not like inventing a new vision. You're just kind of keeping it on track. It's a different skill set. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the getting the right people in the beginning, it's just like well, just hiring your friends. But pretty quickly, it has to grow past that. It has to be like you know, by the time you're a few hundred people, it's got to be much more about like retaining people and developing people, and that's a totally different skill set. Um, and then the money stuff, like at the beginning, you know, making sure there's enough money in the bank is all just jazz hands, right? It's like it's raising money. Uh, at some point, you got to be a business, right? Like making sure there's money in the bank is about revenue and expenses, uh, which is again a very different skill set from the jazz hands. So even though it's always like the same three things, uh, what you do changes a lot, and so that's why I think there's it's extremely rare for the right, for the same person to be the ideal CEO at different levels of the company. Like the skill set for doing it from zero to ten people is totally different than from you know, 11 to 50, and it's totally different from, you know, 51 to a couple of hundred, and it's vastly different from that to, you know, thousands of people. Uh, and so you, when you get people like, uh, you know, Jeff Bezos or, you know, Hiroshi Mikitani that, like, literally went from the first employee to being a CEO of, you know, tens or hundreds of thousands of people, that is just rare. shockingly rare. Right. Almost never happens. I'm certainly not, like, one of those people, so I definitely have, like, my sweet spot for where I'm a decent CEO, and then beyond that, I just, you know, I have no reason to think that I'd be particularly good at it. What uh, what strategies or resources or maybe people do you have any mentors like kind of helped you like would you lean on when you needed a little guidance yourself? I mean, there's a, a lot, and 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 one of the things that I had to really, one of the things that's really improved my life, and it took a long time for me to figure this out. But one of the things that's really improved my life is like when I finally like figured out that I should ask for help because I didn't use to very much. Like, my personality was, I think a lot of people are just wired that way. You just kind of want to figure stuff out yourself. But, like, as soon as I realized, man, that is really stupid. Like, that approach to just, like, figuring it out myself is just super inefficient because, like, there's already all these people that know the answer. Like, why am I, like, what am I trying to prove by, like, taking extra time to figure it out myself and probably getting it wrong? I should just ask. So I think, like, that realization was was pretty foundational. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm really glad that I that I had that realization. Uh, and then ever since having it, it's actually been pretty straightforward. So I've been lucky enough to have many, you know, amazing uh, mentors because, uh, you know, really accomplished people. What I found is um, almost, uh, really 100% uh, that I know, I'm sure there's some assholes out there that I just don't know them, uh, are actually quite generous with their time if you come with, like, decent questions. So if you, like, like I've been able to get really good advice from tons of super well-known, super accomplished people just by, like, having well-formed questions in my head and asking them. From a genuine place of interest, then, I would assume. Yeah, and, like, and, 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 and like obviously paying attention to the answer, and, like, and people love that. Like, I like it. Like, when people come to me for advice, like, the most important thing is, like, well, have you thought of any questions? Like, because if you haven't, then you're not, you're not looking for mentorship. You're looking for networking. That's kind of annoying, right? Like, like I'm not a networking person. Nothing wrong with that. Lots of people are. I'm just not. Mm. But, like, if if there's like questions, if there's something we can like figure out together, that's that's different. And so yes, I've had uh, you know there's people like uh, Esther Dyson who was on my board at Evernote for a few years uh, that I learned a massive amount from. 
uh, you know, Max Levchin at, 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 at PayPal, Reed Hoffman, uh, Jeff Bezos that I've, you know, I've never worked with, but I've like, I've, I've met him a few times in my life and I came prepared with good questions and he was super generous with, you know, with answers. Um, so yeah, I think like advice and mentorship is, is available, I think more widely than most people assume if you just, you know, if you just seek it out and you're prepared to, to you're prepared for it. Sure. I guess uh, also if you show that you're putting in the work yourself, you're making uh, an effort on your part to to actually genuinely want to improve or find an answer as opposed to just yeah connect or whatever as the kids exactly say. yeah it's it's the, like the social climbing the social networking aspect some people really thrive on that and that's okay um, other people just like it's kind of a turnoff so like I I'm not like I I don't try to you know, network and connect for the sake of networking and connecting. Um, and I think, I think there's like, I think, the, I think these kinds of different groups of people, you know, naturally attract each other. Yeah, fair enough. So I think it's um, fair to say, you mentioned uh, Evernote, and I think it's fair to say that you're probably most well known for your work there, um, or at least just maybe the most so prominent. Far. So Well, so far, of course, mm-hmm, it's going to take over <laughs> the world. This is, uh, this is set in stone, so it is written, so it shall be done. Um, but Evernote, uh, it was a company you co-founded. Well, did you co-found it or you were just CEO? You were CEO, correct? Uh, I co-founded it. So you did co-founded it as well. Uh, yeah, the Evernote had a very unconventional start. So basically in uh, 2007, we had just sold our second company um, and we're sitting around trying to figure out what we wanted to do. We decided to work on something uh, around a cognitive enhancement, uh, just new definition of productivity because smartphones were a new thing and we didn't really think that people were using them correctly. And then, uh, so started tinkering on, around on stuff. And then just in my research, I uh, was introduced to this guy, Stepan Pachikov, who, who um, was this brilliant uh, Russian-American you know, inventor and entrepreneur. And he had started a company a few years earlier doing kind of a similar thing in California. We were in Boston. So I moved my team to, to California and we decided to just merge the, the two companies. So we, we kind of combined uh, two companies, and we, we we started a new you know a new entity in uh, in 07. And so there was a there was a he had a company that was called Evernote with a you know with a capital N since like who knows when mm-hmm. uh, I think like ten years earlier, working on like a whole history of like like handwriting stuff and 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 like but but the idea of like cognitive prosthesis of of, of helping you remember stuff was something that he was very focused on with his team. I started working on separately, and then we kind of merged the two things. Uh, so I became the, the the CEO, and we kind of had a you know a new crop of co-founders. So there was a, there was a bunch of us. There was like I think there was like thirteen people right at the beginning of that. Oh, wow. So uh, you stayed on board there for about eight years, correct? As CEO, and then another year on the board. Yeah, um, I think I think yeah, something like that, like nine or ten. I think it was maybe nine years, or yeah, I, I, somewhere I, around there. A long time. Yeah, <laughs> the longest sure. thing I've ever done. Yeah, I imagine with the time you started it. Uh, you did not think that that was in the cards. Um, well, you know, I, I did actually. I, I kind of, I kind of wanted to make it like when I. Uh, but this is the thing: like every everything that I've started, I've I, well, maybe not the first couple of things, but certainly starting with Evernote, I really wanted it to be my life's work. I really thought I don't want to do anything else. This is what I want to do for the rest of my life. Um, you know, and so I was talking about, uh, you know, how we wanted to make it a hundred-year startup. Uh, how this was this was our life's work, and it was for people who had a life's work. Like our target audience for Evernote was people who like who grokked the idea of a life's work, who had something that they really wanted to pursue and they were passionate about. And it was going to take a long time, and Evernote would help them. You know, would help them get there. So no, I, I very much expected and wanted it to be a very long term. And that was a really a cognate uh, 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 a, a, a cognizant decision on your part to 
make it your life's work? Because I could, have, I understand, like in hindsight, looking back, like that is my life's work, or that's just my passion. But actually, defining it as such seems to be very daunting to me. Yeah, I mean, again, there's like yeah. there's video of me probably from 2009, 2010, talking about it like that. So yeah, yeah. no, this was a very very early decision. All right, this is, this is what we wanted. And so uh, you mentioned Evernote. Uh, I mean, you got to remember it was my third startup, so it's like I'd already like made and sold two smaller things. So like I think a lot of us were ready for. Yeah, fair enough. You know, hey, let's not jump around. This wasn't. I'm not saying that everyone's first startup ought to be their life's work. Yeah, you, and it's probably also like a topic that was like you just said something you were passionate about and had been working on in your quote unquote spare time. Um, but uh, yeah, so at its very basic form, it's reductive to say, obviously, but it, it's a note-taking app, a cognitive enhancement. Uh, what did you call it? A cognitive prosthesis? Yeah, yeah. A second brain? Yeah. Uh, that type of thing. Uh, so like, with you've been away from the company uh, for about five years now. Um, you got a little bit of... Five or six, yeah. Five or six years. You have some... Uh, and time has like no meaning anymore, right? Since the pandemic, it's like, I don't know. It all just like last week, together. was it six years ago? Yeah, I think I think it was five or six years. Yeah, fair enough. But uh, you you might have a chance now with a little bit of hindsight, a little bit of distance to the project. What would you say like the the biggest impact or um, influence was or is of of Evernote? Uh, I mean, you mean like on on the world in general, or generally speaking, like if Evernote? you look back at it, like okay, like this is. Like as a part of my life's work, this is like where it really helped advance um, second brain theory or helping people um, maximize their brain power. Where would you see it? Yeah, I think. I mean, I think in in hindsight, the the important stuff that we did, and I, I feel really you know lucky and kind of proud to have been part of that you know part of that team for so long. Um, is you know we. Well, first thing is we made productivity as a category something that was cool and interesting again because it hadn't been for the you know for 20 years before. Like basically, like Microsoft Office came around and there was like a 30-year lull in like when no one really cared about productivity, and there was a lot of like there was a lot of like productivity hacking, uh, mm-hmm. which was like around the edges. So there was lots of like little cults, like you know getting things done and Lotus Notes and something mm-hmm. else. Like there was lots of like little pockets of things, but like a mainstream thing that just like captured the attention of normal people to say, hey, we can be more, we can be more productive, we can be smarter, we can be better organized. Like that, that wasn't a thing. That wasn't a brand. You know, we we like probably the best known productivity brand at the time, you know, was Microsoft Office. But then as a as like a as a lifestyle brand, there really wasn't anything. There was like a, there's something called like Franklin Covey, which sold like little, you know, fake leather binders with like different paper inserts in and, and malls and that kind of stuff. I think I remember those. And I think, yeah, I mean, I was a fan. Uh, <laughs> trapper keepers? <laughs> yeah, the trapper keepers were great. Those are those are even older. Those are like back from the 80s. Yeah, uh, I'm an old but, dude. <laughs> yeah, so I think we we sort of said, hey, the, like there hasn't been a lot of innovation in this, but like everyone, the world needs it. And that I'm, I'm proud of that. Uh, you know, more tactically, I think we helped create... Um, Along with you know other a bunch of other companies, we helped create what smartphone like apps and ecosystem was going to be. You know, we were on the App Store. We were in the Apple App Store on day one. We were you know we were the first productivity app, uh, or at least we were there on day one. There's only like maybe there was like another one or two, but I kind of doubt it. Um, and the idea that like PC software wasn't just like a smaller version, sorry, mobile software wasn't a smaller version of PC software was like that was kind of a novel idea. And so, you know, I think it was Evernote and Uber and Dropbox and Airbnb. Like, we, we sort of, together, that cohort of companies uh, that got started in 2007, 2008, 2009, like, we, 
we helped create the mobile world, which was pretty, you know, pretty high impact. Uh, and, you know, I think both of those we're still seeing the ripples from, right? Obviously, like productivity is having another resurgence and another resurgence. There's a whole crop of newer companies that are doing, you know, really well that I think Evernote, you know, partially paved the way for. Um, so, yeah, I, I, it's, I'm thrilled that, uh, you know, that I got to be a part of it. And, and the people, you know, that I, that I worked with, that I met there, that I worked with before, are amazing. And it's amazing to see a, a bunch of them I'm still working with. So just probably 20 people from the, from the original Evernote crew that, are, that are kind of been in our orbit at this point. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then there's a bunch of others that have just been amazing to see what they've gone on to, to do. So, you know, my, my CTO, Dave Engberg, was, uh, you know, he was the CTO at Livongo and, you know, Teladoc. So that was like a you know, big big company that went public and then got merged with another big telemedicine company and like he's helped change the world of telemedicine. Uh, my COO, Linda Kozlowski, who, uh, is the CEO of Blue Apron. She's kind of the person who mm-hmm. saved Blue Apron. Um, you know, Andrew Sinkov, who was, who I've known literally, I think since he was like zero years old. Uh, but uh, he was our head of marketing and you know he's, okay. he's doing big things at Etsy. Uh, so it's just, I mean, the biggest impact on my personal life is just like seeing the, seeing the diaspora uh, flourish. Uh, okay. That feels really good. Now, you said there's about a, a 20, 30-year lull as far as productivity is concerned when, around the time when Microsoft Office came out. Um, did that, I mean, I, I can imagine that was an incredibly uh, large hurdle to overcome for Evernote at first just to kind of create the, I don't know, the audience for it or make the audience, the target group aware that, yeah, this is something you can use and incorporate to support uh, the to change the way and influence the way you approach learning to improve and enhance the way you you recall information and use it um, what were some of the strategies um, you used to drive growth to get your message to the people to your audience back then I mean we didn't really uh, you know we really focused on the product and the product did a lot of its own you know growth and and, and, and talking and I think that I think you know what the lesson I learned from that that we've really tried to apply to everything we do at All Turtles is about the timing. Like the, the, for startups, like your timing is kind of the most important thing. And I think the way to think about the timing is you like you you pick a pick an important problem, uh, and and that's that's hard, right? Because like so many startups start on things that aren't problems. Like they just like invent something. It's not a problem that people have. So like find find a thing that that everyone you know actually does but doesn't like doing. So like an important problem, and then wait until the world changes. So that a new solution to the problem becomes practical for the first time ever, um, and and then you know and then execute like crazy, uh, uh, and and that was kind of what we did, right? Like like Evernote, the problem was very real. Like every no one liked Microsoft Office at the time. Like everyone used it, but no one. I mean, I'm sure. I'm sorry, I actually like Excel. There was very few people who were like, oh man, this is the best thing ever, <clears throat> especially like various productivity apps on their smartphones. But everyone like wanted and needed this kind of a thing, and yet there just hadn't been innovation in you know 20, 30 years. And then all of a sudden there were smartphones, and the promise of smartphones were like, well, we're going to have this these really powerful computers that have full network access all the time, on us all the time. And so, what better way can we like stay organized and stay productive than really with a computer that always has access to the entirety of the world's information because it's always connected to the internet and it's always with you. So you don't, you can't, you don't just have to do this for the two hours a day that you're sitting in front of your computer. 
you can you can be productive and you can have this capability all the time. And that was, you know, smartphones have been around for a few years, but they weren't going to be mainstream until the iPhone came out. Sure. So it was a pretty easy sell then, just like while you're using your phone every day anyway. Yeah, yeah. well, and and like we we were the productivity app. Yeah. You know, like uh, every every smart dev- every smartphone that shipped in the next few years, you know, we started on iPhone and then, you know, it was Android and BlackBerry and Chromebooks and everything else. Like, you know, they all shipped. They all they all came out with app stores and ecosystems. And they all needed to have, you know, they all needed to have like five apps, you know, like featured, pre-installed. And mm-hmm. it was always like, it was always uh, a web browser and an email client. So like everything had a web browser, everything had an email client. And then everything had like um, some social network, you know, Facebook or Twitter, or if you were in Asia, you know, maybe Line or something like that. Uh, and then there was some, like there was, there was usually some kind of game. And then there was Evernote. And we were like, we were just in that like required five things um, in the fastest growing category at the time, which was smartphones. So our strategy was just like, was that. Our strategy was like become a necessary app for Be every single smartphone device that launches and, and you know, and, and um, uh, use the literally hundreds of millions of dollars of free marketing and advertising that we got from these platforms because, you know, they were interested in making the platforms and we were a very good platform player. So we invested a ton in the design and illustration. Like, you know, we spend at one point we had $10,000 left in the bank. Uh, and, uh, we decided we needed a new logo for Evernote. Uh, and so we had a f- friend of ours uh, who was at Apple at the time, like, Hey, can you, can you make us a logo? We can't really afford to pay you anything like what you normally, you know, get paid. And because uh, we don't have any, you know, very much money, and he said, "Well, how much money do you have?" And we were like, "Well, we have ten thousand dollars." And he's like, "All right, I'll, I'll make you a logo for ten thousand dollars." I was like, "Damn it!" I should have said <laughs> we only had five thousand dollars, but um, but yeah, we basically paid him our last money, and he made the Evernote logo, which okay. was like obviously the the greatest ten thousand dollars we ever spent because like it was so good that like it looked good next to other logos on the iPhone. And so Apple used it in all of their collateral, and they would like wrap the Moscone Center in like giant app icons, and we were always one of them. Uh, and there were like, there were, you know, subway uh, metro ads all over the world. And we were always on them um, because like it was a useful product in a useful category that was quickly growing. And we like took the effort to make, you know, the app icon look good and the design look good. So it just wasn't, you know, it wasn't ugly. And so like the marketing people of these platform companies liked it. And that was about it. I mean, that was that was kind of the focus. We, did, we didn't really do any growth hacking. So it was a lot of, all, you know, lot of timing, right place, right time, right product. Uh, much uh, a lot of parallels then with mm-hmm, thinking. Yeah, about- I think I think luck is a huge part of it. It sure. always is, and I think like the thing is just to, I think the skill is to, like you can't control when you get lucky, by definition, uh, and the skill is just to recognize when you've gotten lucky, like be aware of it, and then do as much as possible to to to, to capitalize on that. So like we knew at Evernote that. You know, in 2008, 2009, we knew that we had just gotten really lucky with the timing. A bunch of bets we made paid off. You know, people ask, like, because, you know, like iPhone wasn't obvious that it was going to be a big thing. Like a lot of analysts dismissed it in the beginning because they didn't have apps, you know, until until over a year later. Yeah, and Blackberry was the thing. Yeah, exactly. They didn't have a keyboard. You couldn't cut and paste. And we made a big investment on it. Uh, and uh, afterwards, people would ask me, like, well, how did you know to, like, how did you predict that like iPhone and smartphones were going to like take over the world? I'm like, I didn't predict anything. We just, we, we placed a bet. 
Yeah. It's like we were at the roulette table and we like we we placed a bet. Like we didn't predict what the number was going to be. We just bet on it and we just bet right. And we could have bet wrong and then we would have been out of business and we wouldn't be having this conversation. So our bets paid off. And then when we knew that they had paid off, then we were like, okay, now like now is not the time to relax. Now is the time to to execute and to do it at a at a, at a higher level than we ourselves thought would, would be possible in all aspects, including the, the branding and the logo and, and obviously the product design and the customer support and all that stuff. Sure, preparation meeting opportunity. I think is the best definition I've ever heard of luck. Um, but yeah, I mean, a lot of like I was saying earlier, uh, there's a lot of parallels I think between Evernote's um, kind of snowballing rise to prominence to to success um, as there are in, uh, to to mm-hmm now. Um, so I would imagine that you probably don't have any um, dedicated growth strategies in place, but you are. Um, you mentioned this earlier. Um, running a, a blog, publishing content. I saw that you also have a think tank with like original research. You are uh, publishing some of it's uh, tongue in cheek. Some of it is probably things that you don't want to know. Like one in ten of your colleagues, people are not wearing pants. Your video call. One in ten that admit it. I mean. Honestly. Yeah, exactly. It's a lot higher than that. People. Let's yeah. be honest. Yeah. Um, but also that you gave a chat on Clubhouse, uh, I believe, earlier this month. Maybe that's a, a regular. Uh, thing, a recurring thing. Clubhouse is a huge topic over here in Germany. Oh, yeah. um, I, ha- I haven't, you know, I think I've just done that one. I've only been in Clubhouse like maybe three times total. Uh, I, I'd, I'd be happy to do more. I, you know, I, I, I just, I just reply. We, we don't like. I don't have a Clubhouse presence myself. Uh, maybe I should, uh, but you know, somebody invited me to to give a talk, so it was I, my, my default to. Uh, to this kind of stuff is to you know say yes if it if it fits in the schedule because sure. uh, I kind of figure at some point you know like I don't know if I'm like nine minutes into my fifteen minutes of fame or you know fourteen and a half minutes but you know sooner or later I'm going to wake up and no one's going to care about what I think about anything uh, and so until that happens like if people are you know are kind enough to actually care about you know to ask my opinion about stuff I'm gonna I'm just gonna go ahead and, yeah, and, and give it to these them. things. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, but uh, yeah. So, okay. You're on Clubhouse. You're doing the blog. You got this other research stuff going on. Um, where, um, where are you trying to take mm-hmm from here? Do you have any concrete expansion plans? I did see that the website is in English and Japanese. I don't know if there's anything to read into that, or if we can be expecting more languages to pop up in the future. Um, yeah. Where? Yeah. Where's mm-hmm going? Well, definitely be fully global. Uh, so yeah, we're 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 lo- we're translating and localizing everything into well, not not even not even so much translating. We're creating original content, localizing the product, creating original content in, in in lots of languages. So it will certainly be in 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 German, in 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 Spanish, and Italian, and kind of all of the, the major European and Asian languages um, uh, soon. Within you know, I think I think there's stuff coming like every every couple of weeks now. And so within a few months, we should be we should be pretty global. We started with with English and Japanese just because uh, we have a, we have a, a decent team in Japan. We've always you know, back from the Evernote days. We've had a lot mm-hmm. of a good presence in Japan because I just really love Japan and I, I miss traveling to there. Uh, but it's yeah, it's coming to to everything. Um, I really think that we're you know we're transforming. It's, it's kind of sounds trite to say, but I think like I think we are. There's like a communication transformation that's happening in in, in the world. Uh, even bigger than that, like um, for the f- there's currently all of a sudden this year there's a couple of hundred million people, a couple of hundred million workers right now in the world, probably forty to fifty million in the U.S., you know, a few hundred million everywhere else, that um, for whom where they live and how they live can for the first time ever be disconnected from their job. 
That's never happened before at scale. Like I, in my entire life, where I live has always been completely about where the job is. I've never had an opportunity to go and like, you know, think about where I want to live. I, I was going to live near the office because I hate commuting. And for the first time ever, you know, a few hundred million people have an opportunity to totally disconnect those two things. And that is such a profound shift in the world. The ripples from that will affect everything, not just for those people, but for everyone in the world, for every single company on the planet. Um, and video and, and, and distributed, like not assuming that people are in the same physical place all the time is going to be something that almost every aspect of life has to account for. Um, a lot of video is going to pick up a lot of that slack, but it won't be just video. It'll be, you know, it'll be other, other things as well. Uh, and, um, we're, you know, we're helping to invent that. Uh, so I think, I think the way that, the way that we communicate, the way that we share information, the way that we think about what has to be quote unquote live mm -hmm. versus, you know, asynchronous, what has to be in person versus, versus, uh, on video, uh, how do we blend those things seamlessly? So it's not like an either or it's, it's usually a both. Um, like we, we want to be one of the, we want to seat at the table for, for helping invent that world. And, uh, you know, I think, I think we've got one it's, it's pretty cool. Again, this is one of these things where we didn't expect this. We got lucky. Uh, it was the right product and the right team at the right time. But, but now we've recognized how lucky we've gotten and we're trying to, we're trying to, you know, bend the world in a better direction because of it. Well, it's, it's, uh, sounds like you're on the right path there. So I wanted to ask you about this kind of common theme that kind of recurs in your work, and that's the use of visual aids. Um, mm -hmm. You mentioned uh, uh, we've been talking about Evernote, which is kind of a distilling of information, extrapolating of what's important and putting it into a more palatable form so you can kind of retrieve it. You mentioned the, um, the state machine earlier, this kind of video diagram um, thing uh, that you have worked on. Um, where do you think your passion for that comes from, or why do you why do you think you use those so often? Uh, I, I you know I think um, so I, I'm very uh, I, I was very you know introverted I am still you know very introverted I'm, I'm pretty shy I was a really bad public speaker I have you know I had a lot of anxiety about that and so and I just didn't you know I just, and not even like public settings even among like you know like friend groups like I was just very awkward uh, and. Um, you know, I had, to, I had to work intentionally to, to kind of overcome it. So for, for years, I was kind of a, you know, I would just kind of study, like, okay, well, how should I, how do, how do normal humans, like, interact? I would, like, watch people and try to, like, learn, like, what they were doing that, that, that came naturally to them but didn't come naturally to me. Like, at, at one point in my 20s, I spent years, like, pretty deeply studying magic. Like, I was, I was, like, hanging out with a bunch of, like, magicians and, like, reading all about it and practicing. And I was, like, a, okay. I was, a, you know, an amateur magician for a while. Because I sucked at it, uh, but I was fascinated by the, you know, because magic is a very like intentional psychology where you're trying to, you're trying to do things that look natural, but obviously like every part of it has to be like planned and keeping attention is a very specific thing. And, um, and so I've just been paying attention to that for a while, just as a, as a, as a coping mechanism, as a way to like make my way in the world. Uh, and I think it's made me, you know, it's made me observe a few things that I just realized are like, oh, actually, a bunch of people could benefit from this. It's 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 pretty effective in, in you know how I try to remember things, how I organize things, how I try to communicate, and and so uh, I've worked on a lot of things in my life. The ones that are the most fun are the ones that I'm making very much like for myself, like for people like me, because like I I want to use them. Those aren't the most important things to make. 
uh, I think there's a lot of people who are much more deserving to, of having their problems, you know, addressed than me. And so I've, I've tried at All Turtles to work on all sorts of things that is, isn't for, you know, for us, it's for, for other communities. But once in a while, you get a chance to work on something that's for, you know, for us, really twice in my life, once at Evernote and once at hmm. And yeah, those go quick, those go so much faster and they're, they're a lot of fun. It kind of feels like cheating. So yeah, I'm, I'm, I am making things that I want to use with people who also want to use them. That's like, that's the best job in the world. Best job in the world is the job you wake up to and it doesn't feel like you're going to work. Yeah, exactly. Like, I'd be doing this regardless of whether or not Sequoia invested in us. So I'm glad they did. But, yeah, sure. Yeah. Nice little cherry on top. Um, uh, I guess the last question, last topic I wanted to get to before I let you get out of here, um, sticking with the visual aids thing, um, another kind of visual media, visual medium you like to champion is this rock, paper, scissors um, concept visual aid for startups. Mm-hmm. Um, what can you tell me about that? The, the rock, paper, scissors, you know, threat model of, of startup competition. Um, it basically was like this. So, uh, you know, people know rock, paper, scissors. Uh, so uh, early startups are scissors. Um, recently successful startups, startups that have some heft to them are rocks. And, you know, big companies are paper. And the competition, the threat model works the way that you expect. So if you're, if you're a brand new startup, you're a scissor, you're really fast. Your job is to, like, Get in and out as quickly as possible. Be really impressive. You are not threatened at all by, by paper, by big companies. They, they, they're just not fast enough. They're not your competition. Like, they're your targets. You can innovate so much faster. You can, like, cut away their customers, their employees. Like, uh, you know, they're, like, that's, that's what you're doing. You don't care about other scissors. You should never care about what other new startups are doing because, like, the chance of any of you, any individual startup succeeding is so small. Like, why worry about it? Worry about yourself because you're a scissor and, you know, go and attack the big companies or at least their, their market segments. They can't do anything mm-hmm. against you. Um, when you startups that become, you know, successful startups that become, you know, unicorns, uh, they become rocks. Um, like I think Evernote, you know, got to a point where we were clearly a rock. Uh, and the thing with rocks is like they're no longer threatened by the new startups because they're, they're not big, slow companies yet. Like they can still move pretty fast. And when they move, they move with, you know, millions of users, millions of dollars. There's some, you know, some force there. So, if, you know, if you're running a rock and you see some new startup doing something cool, like you can just buy them or copy them or whatever. But you can, you can probably get there, you know, faster because you have many more resources. But you start getting threatened by paper. You start getting threatened by the big companies because you're going after the same customers and they've got more lawyers and they can undercut your pricing and they can, like, tie you up and, you know, whatever. Uh, so, like... And, uh, and of course, the flip side is by the time you're a big company, you know, you're not so much threatened by the, by, the, by the rocks because you can just buy them. Like for large corporations, it's easier to write a check for a few billion dollars and just acquire a recently successful startup than, just you know, them. than, than, than to do anything else. So that's, that's the model. And the main lesson from that for startup land is uh, the biggest mistake that many startups make and many startup investors make is uh, they start things where the, in an area where there's a lot of rocks. Uh, and you don't want to do that. You want to start where there's no rocks. You want to start where there's only paper, like at Evernote. You want to start, like when we started Evernote, there were no rocks. There were no like recently successful billion dollar productivity startups. There was a lot of paper. There was a lot of like giant companies who hadn't really innovated in 30 years. So those are the ideal conditions. The problem is that many founders and investors decide to make a startup specifically because someone has recently made a rock. Because someone goes, oh, man, like... Those guys just made a, a car sharing company and now they're worth billions of dollars. Like, we should make a car sharing company. And be like, well, yeah, you should have two years ago. Right. Now Time you shouldn't everything. because, like, now there's this rock. You know, yeah, making a note taking app was a good idea in 2007. It was a less good idea in 2010 because there was already, 
you know, us. Um, so that's kind of the model. Like, look for things where there hasn't been much innovation. So when we started, mm-hmm, yeah, it was like, there's a bunch of scissors. There's a bunch of other, like, small video startups. I don't care. Uh, just because, like, I don't, you know, I don't have time to keep track of all that stuff. There were no rocks. And there was a bunch of paper. There was a bunch of companies who just, you know, were big, but they hadn't really, like, done that much innovation over the past few years. So it was, like, an ideal time. And maybe it's still an ideal time, but we're, you know, sooner or later, there's going to be some rocks in the space. Hopefully, we're going to be one of them. And then it won't be a great a great time to launch your new, you know, small video startup. Right. Uh, but we're going to have to start paying a lot more attention to what the big companies are doing. Fair enough. Well, Phil Lidden, um, thank you very much for joining me. Why don't you tell uh, the people out there where they can find what you're doing? Uh, well, it's at mm-hmm.app, uh, M-M-H-M-M dot app. All right. Wonderful. Thank you so much for joining me. All the best. Thank you. Take care. Talk soon. Bye. Bye. Bye.